0: Hello and welcome to the Stop Devaluation Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the Stop Devaluation Movement, Melody Hilton. The heart of this movement is to see the value in all of humanity and live courageous lifestyles of using our power for good instead of harm. We can affect change by choosing validation over judgment, and I hope you'll take your place and make a positive impact in this world. Welcome, everyone, to the Stop Devaluation My Story interview with David Brooks. David, I am so excited that you are here.
1: Well, I'm definitely excited to be here.
0: You carry so much and you've experienced so much in your life that you're going to speak from a person of experience, but you're also going to speak forth as a mental health expert, you're uh, you have expertise in substance abuse, even criminology, correct?
1: Yeah, wow. yeah, criminology. Yep, yeah, criminology is a is a really big concern for me.
0: So before we get into your expertise and even the solutions that you can bring to the table, could you tell me what issues you dealt with as a child and how that affected your identity, your self-worth, the ability to see your potential?
1: Well, I mean, as a young kid, man, I was always just just one of those off-the-chain little kids. Like, I just always pushed the, 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 the boundaries, um, got into a lot of, I guess just doing boy stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, my dad was a deacon at the deacon at my church. My mom was, you know, always working in the church. So we were always into that world. And, and one of the deacons who, who, um, went alongside my dad for years they were they were on the board together um, they used to go out for you know dinners and lunches and and they used to have their daughter come and, and babysit us and so um she used to molest me um uh-huh. between like the ages of probably eight to about 11. Mm -hmm. And, and I never told anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, It it was one of those things where she used to always tell me, like, if you tell, I'm going to tell your parents. Uh, It even got to the point one time that I was going to tell, and I was just so fed up with it. She literally like destroyed the house. And then when my parents came in, she told them that I did it. And so, Mm it just, it just turned the whole environment around. And so for me, I was really wounded by that. Um, and, and I even stuttered, um, to the point, um, where I just really didn't talk. And so I went to speech therapy, um, all the way up until I graduated high school. Um, I didn't really um, talk very much. And so I ended up, what's so crazy is I always got in trouble for talking because, when I wanted to say something, regardless if it was in a class, whatever it was, I was going to finish what I was going to say. And a lot of the teachers would tell me to stop talking, that it was time was over. But if I was if I had started it, I was going to finish it, no matter how long it took to get out. And so for me, it was very speaking was a was a major lack for me because you know my parents sent me to um, to to mental health therapists, they didn't know what was going on. They just said I was angry. Um, but these people didn't, I didn't feel like they, they paid attention to me. Like they would ask me questions, but they didn't feel like they cared. And so I just never talked about it. And so, um, it was a really big wound for me for many, 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 many years. Um, until I ultimately got my master's, uh, in, in counseling, it was when I really, really confronted, um, that whole time in my life. And trust me, I made a whole lot of mistakes and a, uh, a whole lot of decisions based on how I was feeling. And so, um, that was just a major, major wound in my life.
0: So a lot of those things led you into a lifestyle, uh, a criminal lifestyle that, affected so many aspects of your life could you tell us about that part of your life
1: well i mean i started i probably started using drugs around the ages of probably 14 um, 14 or 15 just kind of hanging out smoking weed with uh, a couple of my friends in the neighborhood um then you know in and, and, and to be honest at first the marijuana was good like I I could smoke and and I felt better and um, but as I got older and and my 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 thoughts became more apparent um, and I'll be honest with you i I didn't even remember that it happened yeah. until I think I, I literally just wiped it out my mind because I don't remember ever thinking about it in high school Um, all the way up until I had a dream about it. I had a dream probably when I was like 20 was the first time that I ever remembered it happening and so up until probably 14 to 20 um, it just the drugs just kept getting more and more and more prevalent in my life. Uh, I would step it up to pretty much whatever I could get my hands on, Molly, um, you know, ecstasy, cocaine, PCP, whatever it was, I just wanted to be numb. And, and I just wanted all of my thoughts to go away. Yeah. And, and you know, but for me, I was always intelligent. I was always in honors. So whenever I started using drugs, I I found out very quickly that the people who are using the drugs are always broke and I, I just couldn't do broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I started selling. And so I really only sold just to, and, and I'll be and in, and, and I'm going to tell you a story about how broken people can be, but they just don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so for years I sold drugs and, and, and literally it just like my best friend, um, ultimately went fed. Um, and he went like 15 years for selling large amounts. And so with him, I was running beside him all through, you know, all through the end of my, 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 my high school to college years. Um, me and him were, were really good friends. And so we were selling thousands of dollars. I was driving and running drugs from all the way across Texas, outside of Texas, just and, and I didn't care about my life. And so um, people always ask me, like, why did you sell drugs? And, and, and I didn't, I never sold drugs really for the money. Um, I'm, I'm a big shoe guy. So I have, I, I can't even name how many tennis shoes I have. I have shoes dating back to the 90s in oh, my right. closet. And so um, until I met a therapist, that I kept going into her office and and I told you that I had went to therapists when I was a child so I was already kind of done with the whole therapy thing and so when I was getting my masters one of my professors told me I needed to go and and see my uh, to go get a a therapist start working on these issues and so I went to a couple therapists and he was like no you got too much in common and so I ended up getting this older white lady and she didn't, I, every time I talked, she would ask me to repeat it. She couldn't understand my, my lingo. Mm -hmm. And I told my professor, like, I don't like this lady. And he was like, perfect. That's the one you need because she'll make you work. And so I went and I kept seeing her and, and I was like, we're not really going anywhere. And I walked in one day and she said, how many pairs of tennis shoes do you have? And I was just like, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, I got a bunch. And she was just like, We need to figure out why. Mm-hmm. And and I, and that was the first person who ever asked me a question about something that I didn't know about myself because I didn't know why I kept buying tennis shoes. And so she told me to go home and think about my first experience, my first negative experience uh, with tennis shoes. And, and and it came back to me. Uh, I remember I was riding on a bus, and and my dad had, I asked my dad for a pair of feelers, and he ended up buying me a pair of Falcons. They were Kmart shoes. I, I remember I was probably sixth grade. And, and I remember I wore them to school, and they kind of looked like, feelers but they wasn't they were the cheap cheap brand and so I had a pair of jeans on I remember I got on the bus and I had played it off for like a week or two and everybody thought I was cool because I had a pair of feelers so I got on the bus we were going on a trip and I kicked my feet up on the on the front of the the bus seat and I fell asleep, and I woke up to kids laughing like they were standing up. My best friend was like, Falcons? What a Falcons? I never heard of Falcons. And I never realized how broken that made mm-hmm. me. Like, it, it broke me um, because I was so angry about my dad not purchasing me a pair of shoes that would, you know, make me represent myself correctly in my eyes. Um, So I ended up selling candy at school to try to um, make enough money. And I remember I bought my first Jordan uh, and I was like 89 and I got so much attention and I loved that. I Mm -hmm. got addicted to that attention. Mm -hmm. And so from that attention, it moved me to I went to the mow grass, but. I realized that I couldn't make enough money to keep up with the amount of shoes that were coming out in my eyes. And so I got the bright idea to start selling weed. And then I started making more money. And, and that was at the age of like 16. Wow. And it literally, I never stopped until I ended up going to jail. And, and I went to, when I went to college, I ended up getting a drug charge, got kicked out of college. And then I just went all out. At that time. And when I got on probation, I just felt like there was no reason to be good anymore. So I just went deep into the drug game. And, you know, until I got off at 25, 26, um, and I never went back. I never went back to that lifestyle.
0: Were there individuals that helped you find your way out of that criminal lifestyle?
1: Well, you know, the professor that I talked about who told me to, that I needed to go get a therapist. I was in his class uh, when I was getting my master's and, um, and Doc was like, he, we were role playing in class and, and I was role playing with a young lady and she said something in the role play that reminded me of what happened to me as a child. and. And I, and I responded to her like in a way, like, I mean, but don't you know how, how, how I felt whenever you did that? And we were supposed to have been role playing. And she made a statement like, you don't, you, it's all made up. Like you're just making up stuff. And I went off. And he literally shut the class down, told everybody to leave. And I went to walk out and he was like, no you're coming back and he's mm. like what happened to you and i was just saying i don't know what you're talking about and he said son nobody acts like that unless something happened to you and so from that it 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 really that was the beginning of my healing process mm. because he walked with me he took a walk with me and i'll never forget this he he reaches down and he grabs a, 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 a flower out of the ground and he rips it out the ground and he holds it up to me and he says, how does, this, how does this flower feel? And I was like, man, it's a flower. And he's like, that's not what I asked you. I said, how does it feel? And I could not fathom what he was asking me. And then he said, I just detached it from its life source. It is about uh-huh. to die. Wow. How does it feel? And I just couldn't tap into that world. And he said, whatever happened to you took away your empathy. Like wow. you don't have empathy. Like you don't see pain wow. in people. And, and that was the first time I ever looked at it. And that's when he said, I'm not going to allow you to graduate I'm not going to allow you to get your license until you get treatment. And so I took every one of his classes. He literally mentored me. I still talk to him right now. Um, he's waiting for me to put on a conference so he can fly up to Maryland to hang out with me. He said I will come for free. And and you got to understand, this guy is like a crazy psychologist. Um, he he just, he does um, uh I mean, he's just phenomenal in what he does. Dr. Howard, he can do, um, just, he does criminal cases when people can't remember, he can do hypnosis. I mean, he's just good. And he taught me all of what I know and he changed my life. But before that, the first time that I ever felt valued, and I'm going to just tell you, I was, um, I was sitting in my cafeteria when I went back to college, um, um, because the first time I told you I got kicked out and I went back for a little while, but then I, I dropped out. And after like four years, when I was like 23, I went back to college and I had to start back over as a freshman and, and, I was in the cafeteria laughing with some of my friends and I went to a predominantly black college and with the Prairie View university. And there was a, a white male that was sta- sitting across from me and my friends. And he just kept staring at me. And so my friends left and I was kind of wrapping up and he came and sat down and he was just like, what are you? Who are you? And I'm like, There's no white people in that room. And I'm wondering, why is he talking to me? Like, I don't know him. And so he just started just talking to me, asking me questions. And you know what he told me? He said, he goes, when you speak, people listen.
0: Wow.
1: He said, I don't believe in God like that. um, But I, I know that you are gifted in talking. And he said, I'm a speech teacher. I want to teach you how to really speak. And so I told him "Man, I'm a computer science major. I'm minor in math. I don't, I'm not doing that. And so he says, you are going to work in computers and you're going to be good, but you're never going to be fulfilled.
0: Wow.
1: He said, you might want to take my class. Just look me up. And he said, my name is Mr. Bannock." He looked me up. So that next semester just so happened I didn't get a, um, I didn't get a I needed an elective and so I remembered he told me to take his class long story short I got in this class and it was the best class like I felt like I wanted to learn more wanted to learn more and at that time I had went back to college I was paying it out of my pocket when I went back to school I was homeless the first two months because they didn't have any housing and I left slept in my, my car, you know. took showers at the truck stop, but I still was going to school. And, and he was like, I see you, you, you dressed in the same kind of clothes, what's going on? And, and you gotta understand, I went from selling drugs to having whatever I wanted, to a point where I went back to school with no money, but I just had a dream that I was meant. And, and the guy that I told you that went 15 years, I went to go see him in the feds, and that's when he told me, man, you got to go to school. Like, you're one of the ones that can make it. And that's why I left the game and went into the college, broke, no money, no nothing. But when I met Mr. Banneke, he asked me, he said, do you want a scholarship? And at first I was like, you know, I, I, I need a scholarship, but – and he said, but I need you to change your major. And I was like, I don't want to change my major. And I prayed on it, but I changed it. And when I changed it, he said, well, we can even give you more money if you, if you get on the debate team. And I was like, I've never debated before. He goes, I'll teach you. So I go and I get the scholarship to be on the debate team. He says the first meeting, I go in for the meeting. When I walk into the meeting for the debate team, I realize I'm the only one there. I'm like, where's the team? He said, you are the team.
0: Oh
1: my. I'm like, but Howie, he goes, I'm gonna teach you everything you need to know about debate. We're gonna go to some tournaments. We're gonna win. We're gonna get the school to see that and we're gonna get some more students. And I'm gonna tell you, we literally studied for three months and he taught me everything he could teach me in debate. And he was like, we're going to San Antonio for a debate. So me and him went. He didn't tell me how to dress. So I went in there with sweatpants Mm -hmm. and Adidas jumpsuits. And everybody's in there in suits. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me how to dress? He was like, we didn't come here to dress. We came here to win. And he says, I want you to be comfortable. I want you to dress in how you dress. Uh And we're going to win this thing. And And I went in there. And I remember the first round, I lost. And I was like, why are you bring me here? Like, you got me looking like an idiot. And he's like, remember what I taught you. Do what I taught you. And I literally, after that round, I won every round after that. Came back that Saturday. Won all the rounds that Saturday. And I ended up winning first place in that tournament. And I'm going to tell you, the day that I won and I received that, that trophy, Wow. That was the first time in my life Mm -hmm. that I felt valued in me. I'm not talking about what other people thought my potential was. It was me doing what I needed to do and making it happen. And after that, I've, I've always felt nothing can ever stop me.
0: Wow. You know, someone can make a movie out of your life. Because you experienced so many things that tried to shut down your voice, the abuse, your experiences, the shame, the fear, all those things propelling you into a way of functioning Opposite of who you really were, leading you to criminality and all those different things, but just a few people seeing your potential and your worth and your voice and what you carried, believing in you, helped you to begin to believe in yourself. And my goodness, now through all those things, how did all uh, your experiences, the wounds, the battles, the struggles, and those who saw value in you, how did that begin to shift? Shape your mission in life to what you're doing today?
1: I'm, I do therapy, mental health, all of that. After I graduated from, from college, I tried to be, I did substitute. Now, you got to understand, I, at the end of my college, I finished with public relations communication. My dream was to write speeches for, for pe- politicians. Wow. And I worked for several mayors while I was interning. But then when I graduated, I tried to get jobs and my criminal record. They, they would never let me in. Like uh-huh. they, would, they would talk to me, but once they realized I had a criminal record, they just kind of stopped talking to me. So I went and became a substitute teacher. As I'm going through the substitute teaching, I, they, they kept asking me, why don't you become a teacher? You got a degree, blah, blah, blah. And I realized that there was a clause in it that said you can't be a teacher with the drug record. Like, it's very difficult. And so I I went, and I substituted, and finally I filled out all the applications, everything I needed, and they they called me up to the office. I came up to the human resources for the district I was substituting, and they gave me a form, and it was a yellow sheet, and it said, pretty much sorry that you have a criminal record and drugs. You can't work for the district, um, but you can continue to substitute. So I was literally broken. Mm -hmm. I turned around and I was like, you know, nothing has ever stopped me with anything I ever wanted. Mm -hmm. And I literally turned around and I bumped into this guy and this guy goes, son, hold your head up. And I just shook my head and just walked off. And he just said, come here. And so I turned around and me and him talked. He said, come in my office and chat. So me and him talked and he was like, what's wrong? And I told him what happened, told him, you know, I really wanted to be a teacher, but my background got me. So he asked me everything about my background. And I told him, like, I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And so as we talked, next thing you know, he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a chance. Wow. And I'm like okay, like, who is this guy? And so he goes, I'm the deputy superintendent. He said, the only thing that I have to sign a waiver that says that you can teach, and I'm willing to sign that waiver as long as you promise me that you have walked away from that lifestyle. And literally he signed a waiver. I went back to the human resources where he told me to take it back to the same lady that gave it to me And she put me on and she called him to verify it because she told me he had never done that in all of his 15 years of his position. And so when I signed that contract, long story short, I ended up going for an interview for speech, debate, theater, arts. I ended up getting the job and I I was working with these young ladies and men, inner city kids. And they would pick the most horrific plays, the most horrific, heart-wrenching dialogues and, and duets. And, and I started counseling them and just kind of talking to them, not really counseling. And so I got reprimanded. And they told me that I couldn't talk to the students, that I had to send them to the counselor until I had a, 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 a degree in counseling. you know what, Uh. next semester I applied. And I went, and and the whole reason I did it was just to talk to my students. But I didn't realize I was going to meet Dr. Howard. And Dr. Howard told me, don't just get an education uh, degree, get the second one, get the clinical also, it'll make you more well-rounded. And I did that. And that's what really, because I was in the school for a while, I worked with uh, autism spectrum, I've done uh, mentally retardation, but I've always been in behavior. So when I went into uh, into mental health, uh, a clinical mental health outside of the school, I started to see some of these behaviors, but I saw mental health and substance never talked about the behaviors. They always talked about what goes on in the mind, the depression, anxiety, but most of their behaviors are causing this, feelings, these emotions, so when I got in the substance, I, it just, I, I created a mindset of working with people's behaviors just like I worked with people with autism, and so what ended up happening was as I started going through, they switched me to the jail program, and then I became the supervisor of the jail program, and it was all about drugs, but these people kept coming back to jail we were literally at like 58% return rate. And so after I switched the program to only focus on behaviors, we didn't talk about drugs. We just talked about the behaviors and how our substance and mental health is affected by our behavior. And I helped these criminals see their behaviors. Wow. And literally we went from 58 and within the next one to two years, we were down to about 12% return rate. Wow. And that's literally unheard of, wow. like recidivism that's below 30 to 40 percent. If you can hit 30 to 40 percent in any program, it is it is it's, it's record breaking. But whenever you get down to 11 and 12, that means one out of every 10 comes back. That's whenever you know you got something.
0: All their actions. You look past everything they had done to see why they had done it and be able to speak into those things just like people did that for you. And it literally transformed their life. So this has become your mission.
1: It's it's my life. It's not even it. When I tell you I would do this for free because I believe in it so much, because I know what I've done to to value myself, and I love to hand people. Like, I tell people, I'm not really a therapist. I'm just a motivator. Mm-hmm. I motivate people to change their behaviors that then change the way they think, which then change the way they live.
0: Yes, my goodness. Now with all these things that you're doing, I mean, it so touches my heart because you not only did not allow pain or your failures or even your criminality stop you, now you carry that to empower someone else. So I... Uh, let me ask you a question about some of the challenges that we're facing in our world today. There are so many things going on in our world, whether it's racial issues, whether it's the riots uh, uh, or the, the violence that we're seeing, or even the, the divides, the political divides, the, you know, all these things that are dividing our nation. Could you give me just a couple things that you believe could help heal those divides?
1: I think you know. I think it's all based on hate. Mm-hmm. I think that we, as a culture, we've created a basis of hate. And 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 for me, I'm a I'm a I'm an advocate for ant- to, for being anti hate. Yeah. Me
0: and too. and
1: I do a thing called Cadillac Counselor on Facebook, YouTube, all of that. And it's in with Cadillac Counselor. I'm I'm all about talking about mental health and substance, but I'm really focused on informing people of their biases you know their prejudices that that sometimes they don't even know the stigmas and I think that if we dwindle it all down I think it's based on hate it's like we we don't want to say but but look at like sexual harassment bullying is is at an all-time high I mean just all of these social issues And it's starting to divide us. It's starting to divide the churches, starting to divide political realms. It's starting to divide even friends. Like there are friends who have been friends for years and Mm -hmm. they just, the, the, the society, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, whatever it is, it just divides us. And then we start to hate each other. And I think if we can come back to a loving place, where we love each other, we see the potential of each other, I think that we can heal each other through those, just through love.
0: That's, that's why I started the stop devaluation movement, because if we would bring validation to one another, and celebration of one another, it would help heal lives just like you experienced that in your life. You told me the time of when you first felt value, that was someone who chose to value you in spite of even some of the actions in your life. And so you're doing that for others now. Really, I think the solution is really simple simple. We just must, as you said, get past the hate and choose to start honoring and valuing others. Could you share with us any more solutions that you feel?
1: So you want to get really deep. Yeah, go ahead. I I really focus on in my business and my way of approach is a thing called criminogenics. And criminogenics is is a mindset. And when you go in, you look at a person's needs. So you look at where a person's from, where 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 did they grow up, the things they thought of, all of the maladaptive mindsets. When you start to look at all of those things, if we look at our criminal justice system and we look at fatherlessness, the criminal system is really a big aspect of why a lot of our fathers aren't around. Now, don't get me wrong. There's other reasons. There's, there's other behaviors that fathers do that, that takes them away from their children, womanizing, drinking, drugs, whatever it is. But if we can look at it from a society standpoint, I would really, really love to see when someone goes in front of a judge that they, they also, there's a, a, a prosecutor there. There's a, a defense attorney there, but I wish that they were. There was a behavioralist Ooh. that focused on mental health and the substance issues wow. that could then present a report about this person's life, about the traumas, about the just everything that that person has went through, so that the judge can hear both sides of the of the of the of the, of the argument about the crime, but then take an account for being sensitive to anything that they've been through so that when that person goes to, to get sentenced, that it will be a, a holistic sentence wow. and then move it into probation. Instead of just having this cookie cutter approach and probation, get that person what they need. If the person that had someone that died at a young age and it comes up on that report, make them go to grief counseling. Don't just have this, cookie-cutter approach that then leaves that person, un, the, their needs unmet by the time they get off of probation. And so that's what normally causes them to the end up coming back, which then increases fatherlessness. And when we look at fatherlessness, look at the ACEs, the, um, the ACE, when it talks about the, the adverse child um, uh, events that happen, when we look at fatherlessness, most of those children have a very high ACE score. Wow. And what that tells is those, those students, those kids are going to end up most likely getting in trouble again or doing, I mean, mental health, obesity. We can go through a whole line of things that happen when the ACE is, is high, when people are going through traumas, when people are fatherless. Oh and that's gosh. what I think when I say, we want to say, we want to find a realistic solution. I'm, I'm presenting that to, as a criminal reform so that we can keep fathers that really aren't criminals uh, and stop taking them away from their children whenever it's a mental health or behavioral
0: problem. My goodness, you are a wealth of wisdom. A wealth of solutions. We could just go on and on. And um, <laughs> I think we just need, we need to do another uh, interview or something because you carry so much. And what you're doing is you're taking something and instead of having this stereotypical uh, approach to something, you're looking at it and say, let's look at a person as an individual. Let's look at their battles. And I can relate to you. I went through sexual abuse from the time I was two years old to, nine years old. I lost my dad when I was young. I don't even remember him. And and so there's so many things where even as you're talking, I'm going, yes, that's why I did the stupid things I did. That's why I was this angry individual. That's why all those things. Oh, and when I was 37 years old, I came to a point uh, where all those things came back and it began my process of healing you know, I didn't even realize just as you said, how those things shaped the way I thought, believed and acted. And if there was someone who would have seen through those things when I was young, it could have saved me many years of pain. And so that is something that you are doing. And we need someone like you, not just uh, to do what you do, but even mentor and equip and and motivate others to begin to be that type of person in their world. And even if we don't have all the knowledge, we can still have the heart to stop hate, to stop devaluation, and be one of those individuals that chooses to see value in someone else separate from their actions because they hold intrinsic worth as an individual. Thank you mm-hmm. so much, David. I no, love you. you, love you, love you, and <laughs> value you so much. And thank, thank you. you for being a part of the Stopped Evaluation Movement. Hey, we've got hey. a future partnership, buddy.
1: <laughs> hey, I'm here for you. Anything you ever need, I'm here.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you, thank everyone, you. for joining the Stopped Evaluation Movement. I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to become a part of the Stop Devaluation Movement. Be sure to like and follow, hashtag StopDevaluation on social media, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and visit stopdevaluation.com for more information and free resources. You can help spread the movement by sharing with others, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and most of all, by living a courageous lifestyle of using your power for good. Go out and value someone today. Your life matters, and you can make the world a better place, one word, one choice, one action of validation at a time.